Welcome to Foresight Friday Roundup, Foresight Health's podcast series for healthcare revolutionaries. Outcomes matter, customers count, and value rules. Hello again, everyone. This is Dave Burdick, news editor at Foresight Health. It is Friday, February 4th. There is no football this weekend, and there won't be for another nine days. But the Winter Olympics started today, and they'll go on for another 16 days. Coincidence? I don't think so. On today's episode of The Roundup, we're going to talk more about telemedicine, one of our favorite topics. Last September, we did a show in which we speculated about the future of telemedicine and whether telemedicine visits have peaked and we're returning to in-person care. We're going to pick up where we left off and look at some new research about where telemedicine is going this year through the eyes of the consumer. Our virtual care consumer activists today are Dave Johnson, founder and CEO of Foresight Health, and Julie Merchantson, partner at Transformation Capital. Hi, Dave. Hi, Julie. How are you guys doing this morning? Dave? We had a great niece named Paloma born this week to my nephew, Derek, and his wife, Natalia. Everybody's doing great. So the expanded Johnson clan, me particularly, is ecstatic this week. Well, congratulations. Congrats. Yeah. Thanks. Great. Julie, how about you? Well, I'm in snowy Massachusetts, where it's even gloomier than Seattle, if that's possible. But at least the snow's pretty. (laughs) That's great. Thank you. Now, before we talk about the state of telemedicine, let's talk about the Winter Olympics. Dave, do you plan on watching? And if so, what's your favorite event and why? I'm sure we'll get revved up and watch them. My wife is a big fan of the figure skating, so I'm I, I'm sure I'm going to have to watch those. Just not as exciting for me since Tanya Harding left the scene. But my favorite event, I'm going to say curling. The physics of the broom sweep to direct the slow-moving disc along the ice just mesmerizes me. It is hypnotizing. Thanks, Dave. Julie, how many hours of Olympic coverage do you plan on watching each day? And uh, what's your don't miss event? If I could honestly just take a sabbatical and watch every hour of Olympic coverage, I would. We, back in our heyday, used to have Olympic parties and make these outrageous cakes with like all sorts of Olympic, you know, paraphernalia on them. I'm with Dave on the curling. I think it's very cool, but I'm really personally into the bobsled and the luge. I think those are like, I don't know, there's something energetic about it. And the freestyle skiing, I have to say, is like unbelievable. That snowboarding thing is starting to become equally unbelievable. So I could go on and on and on. As long as you don't make me watch some sort of ice dancing, I'm all good. (laughs) So that's great. I'll watch the highlights every day, but I won't sit down and watch for hours. I will watch the ski jump, though, only because in my youth on a dare, I went down a toboggan run on a pair of cross-country skis and almost killed myself. You know, watching the Olympic ski jump reminds me of how stupid I was. And to not do stupid things like that, again, if I could help it. Dave, didn't you sled into a wall or something and bust up a shoulder? Yeah. My two favorite winter sports at Colgate were skitching, you know, holding a car bumper while traveling down snow-covered streets and traying, riding meal trays down the gigantic hill leading to the cafeteria. Both sound terrible. <laughs> yeah, yeah. What you're remembering is the great train incident of 1978. I got flipped around and smashed backward into a cement post. No concussion, but a slight abrasion on the back of my head. And for some stupid reason, the nurse at the clinic put a Band-Aid on it, which one of my friends had to cut out a few days later, which was the worst part of the whole experience. So I lost some air, but of course it grew back. <laughs> 
Well, today, if you got hurt and it wasn't an emergency, you could see your doctor online thanks to telemedicine, right? Yeah, and they couldn't put a Band-Aid on it. I'd have to do that myself. Yeah, good point. All right, let's examine our topic today. Last month, NRC Health released its annual Healthcare Consumer Trends Report. NRC said that 55% of the surveyed consumers in its database say they're excited about telemedicine compared with 49% at the same time last year. And in December, the Employee Benefit Research Institute released its annual Consumer Engagement in Healthcare Survey. EBRI said that 77% of the 1,200 employed adults that it surveyed said they were somewhat or very satisfied with their telemedicine visits. Dave, what are your takeaways from the NRC report and the EBRI survey? And do their findings match what you're hearing from your sources? Well, these telemedicine surveys are just all over the map. The NRC survey focuses on healthcare interactions within hospitals and health systems, while the EBRI survey focuses on telemedicine experiences or experiences generally for users with health insurance. So those are employed people with insurance. Uh, Focus influence results. Regarding the NRC survey, they had millions of data points So my guess is they analyze those follow-up surveys we all receive. That means there's probably some selection bias baked into their results. Overall, the volume trends were good. People are returning to hospital care in droves, um, although basic preventative screenings decline. That's a little bit worrisome. Also, mental health conditions, uh, not surprisingly, have worsened given the pandemic. Telemedicine visits were up in some specialties and down in others. It's clearly not a one-size-fits-all tool. But the statistic you quoted, Dave, on excitement levels, they did bump up. But to me, overall, they're kind of meh. And that sort of 50% level matches the anemic levels of consumers that actually visit websites. They were up 5% to a whopping 31% overall. So compare that to Amazon. Not that many people go to hospital websites. Uh, Even worse, hospital and health systems already terrible net promoter scores dropped from a peak of 56 in April 2020 to 44 in December 2021. Even worse. So as our loyal listener Jan Berger might point out, hospitals and health systems have a trust issue. Explaining their report's findings, Helen Hardy from NRC said, Healthcare leaders must move the industry forward by building consumer trust and ensuring that human understanding is part of every care experience. I'm not sure that computes within many health hospitals and health systems. They think they're still mostly focused on payment. On the EBRI report, they found much higher levels of satisfaction for telemedicine visits among employed workers with health insurance than the NRC did for hospital telemedicine users, so 77% versus 53%. Uh, This, to me, fits with the profile that more educated and higher income individuals report higher satisfaction with telemedicine generally. And this group, you know, higher income, more educated people are a leading indicator for society as a whole. It, It takes time for new processes to adapt and telemedicine fits into that category. So I believe satisfaction with telemedicine will grow over time within the broader populations as its use matures and the tools refine. 
The EBRI survey respondents increasingly characterized telemedicine as an important option in their menu of care alternatives. Thanks, Dave. Julie, are NRC and EBRI accurately reading consumer sentiment regarding telemedicine? Why or why not? Yeah, you know, I was really looking at some of the takeaways they used to organize the report, and it struck me that there's some incredible activity going on out there. You know, first, they talk about how healthcare deferment has decreased and preventative care has suffered and consumers are returning in record numbers. And if you listen to all the JP Morgan not-for-profit health system presentations, you know, Dan Michelson from Strata did a great summary of this. There's a very consistent message of health systems moving forward and understanding how to deal with the pandemic, understanding how to treat patients, understanding how to drive a broader set of services to protect their revenue and serve the community. So there's actually some industry action meeting consumers' needs, I think, today, or at least they're trying. Then they talk about how consumer mental health is suffering. Well, yeah, we've been talking about that for a long time, have we not? And what I see on this space, we're tracking a ton of companies in this space that are looking from low acuity to high acuity mental health. We're seeing mental health in Medicaid focus now with companies like Brave. MindJewel has been around for a long time. Eating disorder treatment virtually with companies like Equip and Within. Pediatric, of course, autism, you know, all sorts of omni-channel with companies like we work with, with FiveWorks. There's just so much going on out there. So health systems are nowhere near anywhere on that list. And that's an issue, but consumers, I think, are at least getting a lot of attention from innovators right now. And that's exciting on the telehealth front or the virtual health front. They also talk about how telehealth is growing, but health systems need to figure out the service lines that it works best with. Well, okay, of course, we're getting more mature. We work with a company called DexCare that focuses on how do you actually match workforce capacity and the service lines that you want to be in as a system with how you attract consumers in your community into those service lines and get them into doctor relationships so they can actually have virtual and in-person relationships with consistency and not be using some blunt telehealth service. So that's a huge step forward, I think. With consumer recall growing, you know, there's just a need for consumers to be able to communicate more efficiently. And there's a ton of companies out there that are trying to really get communications down on all of this. And, you know, last, I think this issue of trust that Dave mentions we're starting to see companies that are really looking at the personalized needs of every person that walks into a health system and how to actually create more of an interactive approach than, I mean, if you've ever been in the hospital and you've had the services on the television that you have to use the TV remote control for, and there's no way for you to interact with that other than to really watch television and maybe hit the buttons one or two, you know, now some of that stuff is starting to be available on the phone. A company called Vital that we partner with, you know, creates a whole way that you can interact with what's happening with you in the ER and help people outside the ER understand what's happening with you, assuming that you're not comatose. So there's just a ton happening, I think, in the innovation space to try to help marry what consumers need out of telehealth with what institutions can provide. But to Dave's point, it, it needs to be baked into, you know, what they're doing. So you will stop there. On EBRI report, I'll say is, of high deductible health plan enrollees are very likely to use telemedicine in the future compared with only 33% of traditional plan enrollees. So then you have people voting with their wallet on how they want to receive healthcare services in a mode that works for them. That is a stat I love. All in there. (laughs) (laughs) That's great. It is true when you're in a waiting room, what show is on TV says a lot about that culture. 
is it Fox News or is it CNN, right? There you have it. Interesting. Good point. Good point. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Thanks, Julie. Dave, any questions for Julie? I guess my question for you, just given that impressive list of activities that you described, going for is how far behind are traditional providers in their use and understanding of these virtual tools? And how much risk are they at of being displaced by these sort of more nimble companies that are doing all kinds of exciting things? I think just like we used to call health IT, health IT, and it was its own talk track. Then it got embedded into technology to support all care. I guess we're still embedding it. We're at the same place with telehealth, right? I think one, providers are behind. Two, they're behind because they're actually, if they're actually analyzing it, they're analyzing how they want to provide it and in what specialties does it make sense and are they getting inbound up the chain interest from physicians who see this or is it being driven from the top down in a way that's really based on, you know, financial performance of that service line? So they're kind of in like the storming and norming phase. Well, all these innovators see exactly what consumer opportunity and needs are, and they're going after it. So I think the question for systems is going to be, when will they decide to partner with some of these smaller companies who can actually accelerate them in a huge way into you know, a communications platform that is more contemporary in what consumers want or into a hybrid model that works for them? And Dave, you know, I don't know that we can displace a lot of those services, so I don't get very worried about that in the near term. But if they don't figure it out soon, you're going to start to see those innovators grow in terms of the the breadth of what they can offer. That's great. Thanks, Julie. Now let's talk about two other reports that paint a somewhat different picture of telemedicine, uh, also seen through the eyes of consumers. In December, Rock Health released its annual Digital Health Consumer Adoption Report, It said 43% of the nearly 8,000 adults that Rock Health surveyed said they were satisfied with their live video visits with their doctor last year, but that's down from 53% in 2020. Also in December, the Associated Press and the Nork Center for Public Affairs Research at the University of Chicago, got to take a breath there, that's a long, long title, (laughs) released the results of their telehealth and equity survey. Of the 1,000 adults age 50 or older surveyed, 62% said they use telehealth, but 67% said they were somewhat very or extremely concerned that virtual care is not as effective as in-person care. Uh, Julie, what's your take on the Rock Health and AP NORC survey results? What do they say about virtual care models moving forward? You know, I feel like I'm becoming a broken record on this particular point about our being in the first inning of this game, and telehealth is exactly the microcosm of that. As Rock Health points out, we should stop calling it telehealth or virtual health. It's just healthcare, and it's a different mode of receiving it. So when I look at some of what both these reports talk about, it's logical that at the beginning of the pandemic, we were all freaked out, and we you know, used telehealth out of desperation. It was the only thing we could do. And we ended up using it for perhaps, you know, more severe health issues than now today. Thankfully, we have a choice, right? But today we might use it for things that are more commonplace, you know, perhaps less urgent and help us with convenience or maybe privacy needs we have or the speed of getting something done. So maybe we're just kind of taking it for granted now, right? I I see a little bit of that in this data. And second, we're moving from a one-size-fits-all or kind of a blunt you know, not even my doctor model to a more personalized targeted model. So 
if survey respondents are less satisfied with some of the initial or you know, more pervasive models, it's because those models don't meet their needs. And people are demanding care in the way they want to have it now. They might want to actually have care with their clinician, right? I see a lot of that going on. And on the NORC study, I mean, let's face it, <laughs> I don't want to speak out of school because I'm becoming an older person, but older people are not expected to be the early adopters. And they've grown up with this personal relationship philosophy between physician and patient. And nine times out of 10, some of those health needs are more complicated, right? So I'd be concerned that not all of my needs could be met over the phone too if I had multiple chronic conditions or was on a bunch of different meds that I couldn't keep straight. And I can only say this because I'm channeling my mother, frankly, who, as I've shared before, love her sword health PT provider. So she loves virtual health, but I don't think that's commonplace and it may not fulfill all the needs of more complex patients with, you know, fewer kind of technology capabilities. As one of those patients, I totally agree. (laughs) (laughs) Thanks, Julie. Dave, what do these survey results say to you about what consumers really want from telemedicine and is the market giving consumers what they want? Julie, I, I love the story about your mom and, and sword, and the apple certainly didn't fall far from the tree there, since you're you're way up on the cutting edge. It <laughs> comes from somewhere, right? Uh, I got to right. tell you, yeah, Dave, I got to tell you, these these surveys remind me of uh, the story about the blind men and the elephant. You know, everyone touches a different part of the elephant, so they have a different understanding of what's going on. And, uh, you know, the four surveys we're focused on today all have a, a, a different uh, different focus. And of all of them, I enjoyed the, the Rock Health report the most because it was very forward-looking in terms of trying to figure out how the market's evolving. But I, I did want to clarify one thing, and, and you're right that satisfaction with live video visits decreased from 53 to 43% in the Rock survey, but there's an important nuance there. They were measuring satisfaction of live video visits relative to in-person visits. So last year, 53% said they preferred live video visits to live in-person visits, and that dropped to 43%. Not really a surprise when you think of how afraid generally people were to risk getting COVID. So that was part of it. And I also think on the positive side, Health systems, with all this talk about consumerism, are actually improving customer experience. So going in for an in-person visit has gotten better. They're they're more timely, they're more responsive, and so on. So I don't really see there that decrease as negative as, at all. And then I just thought some of the core themes, and Julie's picked up on this too, that telemedicine as it matures is moving from a kind of one-size-fits-all business model to a tool. It's just part of the repertoire. And that's how we should be seeing it. The emergence of these virtual care first models is creating entirely different ways of people interacting with the healthcare system. And that's going to be better. Targeted care, the ability to use data and technology to personalize and tailor, also very powerful. And I think we're figuring out that telemedicine is great for some things and not great for other things. It can be just terrific if you need access to a specialty care physician quickly, really speed that up. Maybe not as as effective for things that require hands-on interaction with caregivers. So I, I think the evolution of these hybrid models and more integrated delivery is what we're going to see going forward. And 
the development of these omni-channel platforms and figuring out what the partnerships are and, and how we push all of that out into consumers and give them greater control, not only over their healthcare decision-making, but over managing their health. That's where I think we're going to move during the course of this decade. One concerning element in the Rock Health Report was the stagnant use of telemedicine services in rural areas. It uh, was kind of up everywhere else, but stagnant in rural areas, and again, speaks to some of the fundamental access issues that are embedded within healthcare services. As Julie mentioned, AP and NORC uh, focused on older users and good news, widespread use of telemedicine services. The quality concerns are legitimate and they're greater among ethnic and lower income users. But one thing I will say, I do think the early adopters are teaching us how healthcare is going to move going forward. So there are going to be more and more people like Julie's mother that are using these tools in constructive ways to make their life better. We're very much, as Julie said, in the first inning, but we have very good indications of how this will evolve throughout the broader population. And I hope the industry is paying attention to that because sitting on their hands as these new technologies migrate into the general population will put them further behind than they already are. That's great. Julie, any questions for Dave? So selling through health plans and employers still makes so much more sense, but these innovators are struggling because they're not getting enough access from the health plans and employers or enough combined mind share to really get those consumers or employees or members to use technology. So what do you think about the different channels and which one could be a winner? You know, my biggest disappointment, Julie, and you've heard me say this before, is that uh, employers that pay premium prices for routine healthcare services haven't demanded more value. And I think what's starting to happen is we're seeing through channels like Transparent the ability for employers to um, become better buyers or enable their members to become better users of healthcare services. And I think what we're going to see are the evolution of these omni channels that build in all kinds of capabilities. People are going to be able to one-stop shop. That to me is why there's so much money flowing into the digital health space. And so I, I think that's what we're going to see in healthcare. And um, hopefully it will lead to more choice and more efficiency. I think I see it coming mostly through employers and through the development of these omni-channel like transparent that cut out all the middlemen. Had a great discussion. Now let's briefly talk about other big stories this past week. Julie, what other healthcare news caught your eye this week? Well, something I bet only a healthcare wonk would have caught was the amazing Peter Lee and his friends launched a new paper with the National Academy of Medicine that talked about the quintuple aim for healthcare improvement. So we've now moved from three to five. And most notably, advancing health equity and care team well-being are four and five on that list to join reducing costs, improving population health, and enhancing the care experience, which we're you know, more familiar with as concepts. So I just love that we're starting to really ground down into these two issues around care team and health equity. Sounds like a topic for next week's show. We'll figure that out. Thank you. Dave, what other healthcare news made you spit out your coffee? I was struck by the high enrollment numbers on exchanges, they're up by 30%. But a lot of that was driven by the subsidies that were in the Build Back Better bill, and they have to get renewed. And I'm curious to see how the politics of that play out. 
So Interesting. Yeah, those numbers were off the chart, so we'll see what happens with that. Thanks, Dave, and thank you, Julie. That is all the time we have for today. If you'd like to learn more about the topics we discussed on today's show, please visit our website at foresighthealth.com. You also can find a recording of this podcast and all our podcasts on the Healthcare Now Radio Network, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and other streaming services. Subscribe now and don't miss another segment of the best 20 minutes in healthcare. Thanks for listening. I'm Dave Berta for Foresight Health.